Good morning to all of you. Thank you for listening in this morning as we kind of delve into the scriptures just a little bit. We're going to begin with the story of Saul and his disobedience to the Lord. Remember that Saul was uh, anointed by the prophet Samuel to be king over Israel when the people demanded a king. We call that, upon, that the first king of the United monarchy. Everybody thought that he would be the king that would continue on. And the Lord gave a commandment in chapter 15, verse 2, said, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against him on the way when he was coming up from Egypt. Go now and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has. Don't spare him, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. And so Saul got his people together. They went to Amalek and they uh, got just Amalek where they were alive. And they destroyed the Amalekites. But it says in verse 8 that he captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive utterly destroying all the people with the edge of his sword. But they also kept the best of the flock, everything despised and worthless, they utterly destroyed, but the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, and the lamb, and all that were good, they weren't willing to destroy them utterly. So they left them alive. Of course, the word of God said, you shall utterly destroy them. So that was the sin of Saul. And so Saul, as next there, said, Blessed is the Lord. I've come, I've carried out the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel says in verse 14, Well, what's this bleeding of the sheep I hear in my ears and the lowing of oxen which I hear? And Saul says, Well, we've uh, taken them because we wanted to sacrifice them. And uh, then Samuel begins to say, Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And then he begins to tell him, has the Lord much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice, as in obeying the word of the Lord? It's better to obey than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. Rebellion is as the sin of divination and insubordination as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the Lord, the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. And so we see right there that this is uh, the end of Saul's kingship as far as the Lord was destroyed, that was concerned. It's going to continue on a little while, of course, because uh, <clears throat> uh, he uh, Saul doesn't want to give up the kingdom, as we can understand there, uh, but it's going to eventually end. It's already been taken away. And then we learn because of that, in chapter 16, verse 14, the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. An evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. So here was somebody that walked with the Lord, had the Holy Spirit within him, was guiding him, directing him, and now it departs from him. And he has an evil spirit that terrorizes him. And he no longer had the direction of the Lord. He no longer had the comfort of the Lord. He no longer had the presence of the Lord with him. And, and what would you and I do if we didn't have the presence of the Lord with us? I, I, what a price to pay to lose the presence of the Lord in your life. My goodness. 
Well, as I read this, and then, of course, Daniel, uh, David is anointed. Daniel, sorry. <laughs> David is anointed as a new king, and there's going to be battle after battle after battle. Uh, as Saul tries to destroy David because he realizes that David is going to be the new king. And Saul doesn't want to lose that kingdom. And so there's conflict that's going to be created through that. Now, David is going to be the new king. And, and if you think about it, who does David re represent? I, I kind of view this as Saul represents Israel and Judah and the Jewish religion, actually. And David represents the church. And you've got this old thing that's passing away. And, and you know, the verses that talk about the pangs of childbirth happening and so forth. Well, that was what was happening with David and Saul in those battles that they had back and forth. Uh, Saul trying to kill him and trying to destroy him because the old kingdom was passing away and a new one was coming in. And the kingdom of the church that David kind of represents. Saul already begins saying, uh, Rebetty began to see the effects of the Spirit's departure from him. Uh, we have this man of Goliath. And of course, you remember David and Goliath. We all learned that as stories. And Saul was a big man. Saul was six foot six. Biggest man in Israel, pretty much. And he was a massive man. He was strong. But then they had this champion come out of the army of the Philistines named Goliath. And Saul was scared to death of him. But David came down and was able to kill Goliath, as you remember. Now, why... Did Saul have such fear and such trepidation over it? Because he didn't have the spirit of the Lord with him. And David had the spirit of the Lord. And so he knew no fear against this. He knew he was going to take care. He knew he was going to kill this Goliath. Goliath didn't stand a chance. Even though the, David was kind of uh, a young little kid at the time. And he did that. One of the other things we need to see about this giant Goliath. If you've noticed about it, it says his height was six foot and a span. Okay. And now now separate that for a second and you put that one six foot, that six, that number six up there. Okay. And then in verse seven, you read the shaft of his spear was like a weaver's boon. The head of a spear weighed 600 shekels of iron. So you have a second six associated with Goliath, right? So that's six for his out uh, for his height, and six for the weight of his spearhead. And then you calculate the number of items that he had. It said that he had a bronze helmet, scale armor, bronze greaves on his legs. Those are two items. A bronze javelin between his shoulders and a spear. And so those are six items. So what's associated with Goliath? The number 666. And of course, every Christian recognizes 666 as being an evil number, as being a false god, a man who would make himself God. Because you've got three, which is the number of God, and six, which is the number of man. 
So it's a man who would try to make himself God, and that's what 666 is all about. And so Goliath is a symbol of this man in the last days that we're going to look at. He's going to be a giant of a man. And, uh, you know, it says that you can't buy and sell and all these things. His kingdom is so great and so forth. He's going to be like our Goliath. But the church will have the power to take him down because we have the spirit of God. And when you have the spirit of God, there's nothing that can stop you. He's with you. You just need to access him and allow him to access your heart and change the things that are in you. So what we're saying is that Samuel lost the kingdom. David, uh, Saul lost the kingdom. He's a picture of the Jews and Israel and the kingdom, the spirit of God departed from them. And it's one bad chapter because the departure of God from them, uh, you know, in Ezekiel 10, you have the same thing, the departure of God from the temple. That's another sad verse when you see the Spirit of God as if he doesn't want to leave, but he has to leave because of the sin of Israel, and he slowly departs from section to section, and finally he disappears completely from the nation of Israel in those days in Ezekiel. And of course, the temple then is destroyed, and they go into what is known as the diaspora, the sprinkling all around of the nations. They no longer have the spirit of the Lord in them. He's not with them. And the church takes over. Here we see the church taking over in the killing of Goliath, of course. That's the church work because the spirit is now with us and with the kingdom. Now, it's not going to be that way forever. You understand that and I understand that. That's not God's purpose. His purpose is that eventually... Israel will come back. He wants them to come back. He loves them. There is chosen people, and it said, as Paul tells us, that the call of God is without repentance. That means that he's not going to change that. They will come back. And if we were going to take some time, we'd go back into that and show you where all that comes about. So David is a new kingdom, picture of the church. And let's go to David's great sin with Bathsheba. For David being the church, we're going to find out that there's another element of the church that needs to be examined. In chapter 2 of 2 Samuel 11, it said, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house, and he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful in appearance, and of course we know it's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. A couple of things about that. In the kingdom of God, you have all nations, all tongues, all people, don't you? In the time of Jesus in Jerusalem, they hated the Gentiles, of course, and they didn't want Jerusalem to have any foreigners within it if they could help it. Of course, they couldn't do much about the Romans being there. But here in David's kingdom, you see that the kingdom's made up of foreigners and Jews and Gentiles just mixed together. In fact, they had taken Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife. And Uriah was a Hittite. Now, the Hittites were an Asian nation. You know, they had uh, uh, the eyes, uh, Asiatic eyes and so forth. And so obviously... Uh, all these people were in there. And look at the devotion of Uriah to David and to the army. 
this is his kingdom as well. And so in the kingdom of David, into the new, the church age, we say all these people congregate, all of them are together. And there's there's that added thing. And that's what makes you see that this is depicting the kingdom of God. But David took his wife, too. Now, David had plenty of nice wives. And at this time, he had concubines. I'm not saying that's right. It's not right. And he saw Bathsheba, and he wanted a new wife. Or he wanted her. And it wasn't that this Bathsheba had flaunted herself at him, because the way the houses in Jerusalem are made is they have a balcony up there, and that's where people commonly bathe. And you can't see in that it's well hidden from all the way around by the uh, walls around the roof of the house. <clears throat> the only one that can see what was going on was somebody who's up above. And David is up above because they thought, well, the king, we don't have to fear anything from the king looking down and being a peeper or anything like that. We don't have to fear the king doing that. And so Bathsheba was out there in all innocence. It's not that she was flaunting herself or trying to be seen by David. She was just simply taking a bath. And David took her. And she's going to become the new queen, isn't he? And he lay with her. But then she became pregnant. And of course, David tries to maneuver around and hide her pregnancy. Um, Uriah is supposed to uh, come back home and Uriah is more faithful than David and refuses to go to his house because he's part of the soldiers. And he said, I won't leave. And and why should I be home without and taking advantage of my wife and my home situation when the nation's at war? I'm not going to do that. And so David, of course, has him killed. Has him in the midst of the fighting, Beerus is part of it, and then has the other soldiers withdraw. And so Uriah is killed. And David thinks, like so many of us, that my sin is hidden. Man, I've gotten away with this. Okay. But then God knew. And he saw all of it. And every sin has a price, doesn't it? Not going to let that sin go unpunished. And Uriah came in and told him that story and said, You're the man, David. You've done this. And then we come to that very interesting statement in Second Samuel chapter 12, verse 13. David said to Nathan, I've sinned against God. I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has taken away your sin and you shall not die. However, because of this deed, you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. The child also that is born to you shall surely die. Now, David doesn't understand that. He's glad, of course, that his sin has been forgiven. But he realizes that he's the one that did the sin, but the child is dying. Now, isn't that interesting? Have you thought about that? The child is dying, and the father did the sin. The child is completely innocent, isn't he? Why is that? What's going on with that? What's that about? It's a great mystery, but I think you can see the gospel in there. Can you, if you look, can you understand the gospel going on? Can you understand what God is trying to show us through that? 
Well, it's simply this, that an innocent child dies for the sins of the father. Who is the identity of that innocent child? Well, it's Jesus, right? He's nothing more than a picture of Jesus. And Jesus was certainly innocent. And so when Nathan was telling him the child shall die, he was telling Daniel the gospel. Someone's going to die for your sins. Because someone's always got to die for sin. Sins can only be atoned for by blood, by death, by life being given. Somebody's got to die. And because the Lord has spared your life, he's taken away your sin, but he can't take away that judgment. Someone has got to die. So God himself died. And that's what we know about Jesus on the cross. And that's what we proclaim as the gospel. Somebody takes my sin and he pays for me. I remember talking to a Japanese fellow. I was on my way to Japan one day and we were sitting on the airplane and I was telling him about the gospel. And he said, well, that makes no sense to me that someone could die for my sin. Someone could take my sin upon himself. And I thought for a minute, well, if you have a traffic ticket and someone else comes up and says, let me have that ticket, and they go down and pay that ticket, the debt is paid. The city's no longer going to look for you to pay that ticket. The debt is already paid. Okay? That's the same thing here. Blood is spilled. Your sin are taken away. Somebody has already paid for it. It's got to be paid for one way or another. Either you pay for it or Jesus pays for it. In this case, the child represents Jesus. And he pays for the sin of the father. Well, of course, we know that although the sin was forgiven, the sin doesn't depart from the house of David. His firstborn son was a man by the name of Amon. Abnon, we find him in chapter 13. We find that he rapes his half-sister, Tamar, and throws her out. She becomes never the same after that. Her brother Absalom <clears throat> slowly begins to figure out, conspire, and make plans, because David does nothing about this. And he has a feast and he kills Amnon in that time. And then Absalom flees. And these are two half-brothers. How that must have been so sad on the heart of David to see your children murdering each other. My goodness. Seeing that thing mess up. And Absalom at this point begins to hold a grudge, doesn't he? And so we're going to see that Absalom uh, eventually is restored to David. She eventually comes back and David allows himself to be, uh, allows himself to recall Absalom and doesn't say anything to him. And then we find that Absalom begins to conspire against David. Now Absalom had this beautiful head of hair and it, he provided for himself a chariot and horses and 50 men as runners before him. 
And we're told in 2 Samuel 15 that he used to go up and stand beside the gate. When a man had a suit to come to the king for judgment, Absalom would call him, from what city are you? And he'd say, your servant is from one of the tribes of Judah. See, your claims are good and right, but no man listens to you on the part of the king. All that one would appoint me a judge in the land, that every man who has any suit or calls could come to me and I could give him justice. So he began to ingratiate himself and, and foment this discontent against his father, David. Now, David loved Absalom. He wanted him to have the kingdom. Absalom would have been the king after David. But Absalom revolted against him. He tried to tear the kingdom away. And as you look at that, you realize what it's really saying is Absalom is a satanic figure, isn't he? In fact, as you look at it, you say Absalom is to David as Judas is to Jesus. David loved Absalom. He was his son. He loved him with all his heart. Even when he conspired and tried to throw him out of the kingdom, David still continued to love Absalom. And then at the Last Supper, Jesus gave Judas the choice seat, the one that was closest to him. And he said, man, you don't have to do this. He did everything he could to change Judas's mind about being a traitor. But Judas already had it in his heart. And then you begin to see a little bit deeper in that whole idea, don't you? that this is really talking about Satan and God. For Satan conspired against God to take away his kingdom. And that's what's going on. He wants to take away his kingdom. So how's he going to do it? He does it in the same way as Absalom. So in the Absalom conspiracy, we're seeing what Satan's plan is for the kingdom of God, what he wants to do, how he wants to destroy that kingdom, and what he does with the churches, because churches are even mentioned there. What happens to them when Satan comes in, that revolt, that great, uh, great uh, treason, that great uh, conspiracy takes place. We call it the great tribulation. That is pictured right here. It takes the kingdom and then David has to come back and retake the kingdom away from him as God comes back and retakes the kingdom after Satan is able to, what, well, Jerusalem, of course, after Satan has instituted himself as king over Jerusalem, and God takes it back away from him. And then, of course, you have the great battle, and the great battle is the armies chasing Absalom. David's great general is chasing Absalom. And Absalom, remember, had that great head of hair. And isn't it ironic that that's what killed him? As he's driving his horses, his hair gets caught in a tree, and he's dangling there by his hair. He can't get down because his hair has gotten caught in the tree. And so Joel comes up and simply kills him. And that's the end of Satan. So we see in this time that Absalom is a picture of someone whose pride has gotten in his way. 
He's been blinded by his pride as to who he is, as to what he can do. His desire for his own motives, his own kingdom. He wants his own kingdom. He wants his own place. And he can't create his own kingdom. So he wants to steal it from God. Of course, on the human level, when you look at Absalom and David, what are you picturing? What are you seeing? You're seeing a son revolting against his father, which just about kills his father, of course, because he loves Absalom. Uh, later on, when he learns that Absalom's dead, he says, oh, Absalom, Absalom, how I loved you. And you know, God loves Satan in the same way. And he knows all that Satan has done, and he knows that he's going to have to die for what he's done. He can't stand that conspiracy within his kingdom and keep the kingdom but he does love him. And so great is the love of God. There's no other way, right? So today, as we've looked at this, I guess the main lesson that I want out of this is that uh, there are two kingdoms pictured here. The kingdom of the New Testament, the kingdom of the Old Testament. We're going to see the, there is a loss of the son. The son dies for the sins of the Father, which is, of course, Jesus, which makes this new covenant the covenant. And that's how we have forgiveness for our sins through Jesus. And then you're going to see in the church age what continues on. That you're going to have one so close to the kingdom of God that you would think he would never reveal, but he's going to reveal, rebel against God. And what a tragedy that's going to be when he rebels. We have there pictured the Grand Tribulation when Absalom or Satan or the Antichrist takes the kingdom of God and tries to destroy it, takes the city of God. Jerusalem is overrun by the Antichrist and is taken, and God takes it back from him. And the death of Absalom, the death of the one that we thought was so dear and has confused many and led many astray. Well, thank you for studying with me today. I hope you see these things and I, I so appreciate you listening and being attentive to this message. Please join me again when we have another opportunity to share in a podcast. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for each person that listens to this. Who are we that we could come before you? Well, who we are in our own flesh is not so important. But the spirit that we have within us, the spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the spirit of God, he's magnificent. And he's guiding us. And I ask you that you would take away all my words and just have his words. He's going to direct us. He's going to show us. He's going to be with us. He's going to bless us. Thank you, Lord, for your Holy Spirit within us. And we praise you and honor you. And I ask for each of these people out here, no matter what they're going through, no matter what time it is in their life, that you just touch them today. We thank you so much that you have given them a blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.